Once there was a farmer who attended church every single Sunday. He said he benefited from every sermon he had ever heard. But he did comment. To tell you the truth, I've never heard a sermon, but what I didn't get something out of it. But after thinking for a few minutes, he added, however, I've had some mighty close calls. I think we've all had some mighty close calls with some sermons. But the sermon that Jesus delivered here in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 was definitely not one of them. If sermons were pizzas, the Sermon on the Mount would be a sermon supreme. For the folks sitting on that grassy knoll overlooking the Sea of Galilee, those who heard Jesus' sermon, this was a sermon that they would never, ever forget. Jesus, you see, had been traveling the countryside. He had been preaching the kingdom of heaven. But now he explains the nature of that kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount has been called the Christian Manifesto. It's the very heart of Jesus' message. The sermon starts with nine Beatitudes. The Pharisees had said, do, do, do. While Jesus had said, be, be, be. Frank Sinatra says, do, be, do, be, do. But that doesn't matter. What matters here to God is not what you do, it's what you be. You see, the Pharisees did all the right things, and yet evil lurked in their hearts. Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount that righteousness comes from the inside out. You remember, Paul had been a Pharisee before becoming a Christian. And yet after his conversion, he said of the self-righteous life that he had manufactured, I count it but rubbish, literally dung or manure. He says this emphasis on do, do, was just that. Do, do. It was dung. God knows that you will be the right person if you, if you be the right person, then you will do the right things. It's attitude that matters. In rapid fire, let me comment briefly on each of these Beatitudes. Number one, some folks are full of themselves, but the poor in spirit look outside of themselves and throw themselves on the mercies of God. Jesus will bless their humility with the kingdom of heaven. What an irony. Spiritual beggars end up royal heirs. Jesus blesses the person who will mourn, who knows that there is a time for tears. There is sin in us. There is sin around us. And our eyes can't stay dry when we really understand sin's consequences. You see, the first step in fixing what's broken is realizing it's broke. And Jesus promises to comfort the person who stops pretending all is well and is willing to mourn. Meekness is strength under restraint. A meek person knows that it's better to win his opponent's respect than to win the game. Souls are more important than scores. The meek will inherit the earth, and here's why. God trusts authority to the person who has the right priority. What's your driving passion? In other words, what yanks your chain? You see, life is full of stuff that creates a bloated feeling for a time. That's why we call it stuff. But it can't slake a spiritual thirst. Jesus is the true thirst quencher. He satisfies the seeker. 
those who hunger and seek for righteousness. Apart from God's mercy, heaven is out of reach for all of us. And that's why we need to be merciful. Hey, can I deny you my forgiveness when God has forgiven me so freely? He says, the more mercy I show, the more mercy I'll know. That's why it's time for us to bear at the hatchet. It's time for us to cut some brother of some slack. It's time to show mercy today because tomorrow, guys, you might need some. You know, coffee can be brewed either too strong or too weak. And yet I'll still drink a good cup of coffee. But if I see a fly in my cup, that's it. I can't drink an impure cup of coffee. Likewise, my love for God is sometimes stronger, it's sometimes weaker, but it always needs to be sincere. You see, hypocrisy is the fly in the cup. Jesus will always bless genuine faith, but he says only the pure in heart, they will see God. Peacemakers like to fight. They confront hostility. They assault misunderstandings. They attack problems with peaceful solutions. They make war for peace. A peacemaker tries to destroy his enemies by turning them into friends. And never are we more like God than when we fight for peace. That's why Jesus calls the peacemakers sons of God. Take a stand for what's righteous. And those who are in the wrong will take a shot at you. You'll be persecuted for righteousness sake. Never forget those who God calls champs, the world calls chumps. When you stand for Jesus, those who oppose him will try to shoot you down. Don't be surprised when it happens again, when you're persecuted for his sake. Don't be surprised, rather rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. We may get scars here on earth, but if we're faithful, we'll get medals in heaven. Those are the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the believer's birthmark. The Spirit plants these attitudes in us when we're converted and it becomes our job to grow them and to nurture them as we grow in Him. Notice, too, each beatitude begins blessed. The word literally means happy. In the preamble to our Constitution, our founding fathers guaranteed us the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But those founding fathers were some wise old goats because they knew they might be able to guarantee the pursuit of happiness, but they certainly couldn't provide happiness. Finding happiness is an entirely different matter. You see, make happiness your goal. And that's the best way to end up unhappy. It is. Always remember, happiness is never the result of a direct pursuit. Real happiness is a byproduct of living your life in a right relationship with God and cultivating these nine attitudes. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus tells us, You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the earth. Of the world. We are salt and we are light. And as Christians, it's our job to spread God's word and to shine God's love. We need to sprinkle and twinkle. Remember, salt serves four functions it's a preservative, it's a seasoning, it's a thirst producer, and it's an antiseptic. 
And this is the kind of influence that we need to have on the world. Our presence should arrest and slow down the corruption going on around us. Our joy should add spice to the blandness of the world. We are the salt on the grits. Our winsome witness should create a thirst for God and the people we know. And the love we show should help heal infectious wounds and bruises and cuts. We're salt, but we're also light. And light's primary function is to drive out the darkness. It exposes misconceptions and dangers, and it reveals God's wonderful truth. Jesus tells you and me in verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Guys, there are two reasons why a person does not believe in Jesus Christ. First, they have never met a Christian. Second, they have met a Christian. (laughs) We're all witnesses. Some of us are positive witnesses. Some of us are negative witnesses. But you are a witness for Jesus Christ. Be aware of that. In chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus makes an important statement. He says, Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You see, the intent of the law was to show us how to love God and how to love one another. But the Pharisees kept the law out of duty, not love. Their righteousness was a loveless legalistic kind of self-righteousness. Jesus, though, obeyed the law's intent because he loved. Here's a poem. To work and run the law commands, yet gives me neither feet or hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly than gives me wings. In other words, the law tells me to do loving deeds, but it fails to put any love in my heart to help me do those deeds. Whereas Jesus fills my heart with his love and then sets me free to act in loving ways. What a difference. This explains what Jesus says in verse 20. I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, love is better than law. You see, the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus was the difference between I got to do it And I want to do it. Jesus put his love in our hearts and our righteousness for him flows out of that love of Jesus Christ. In the remainder of chapter 5, Jesus contrasts his righteousness with the righteousness of the Pharisees. The difference in essence between love and law. Between I got to and I want to. The Jews boasted that they had never murdered anyone. None of them had pulled the trigger. None of them had ever held a bloody knife. But in chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says to them, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. In other words, don't be proud that you haven't done the deed when the seed is in your heart. So you've never pulled the trigger. Powder burns and metal filings aren't on your hands. But has your anger ever blown up at your wife and kids? 
If every angry outburst killed someone, your morning drive to work would look like a killing spree. It reminds me of the man who was bitten by a dog. The doctor took the test and told him he had rabies. He suddenly pulls out a piece of paper and he starts writing. The doctor says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't have to write your last will and testament. You're not going to die. We've got medicines nowadays that can treat rabies. The man looked up and said, I'm not writing a will. I'm just jotting down names of the people I want to bite. (laughs) What Jesus is saying is that anger, not just murder, is sin. Not just the action, but the attitude is sin. Jesus also warns us in chapter 5, verse 27, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Every guy in this room knows it's one thing to just look. You see a pretty girl, you can't help it. You see a pretty girl, you, yep, Lord, you made a pretty one right there. And then you just move on. But every guy in this room knows that it's another thing to take that lingering look, that lustful look. It's when the imagination takes over the image in my mind. And Jesus is saying here, promiscuity begins in the head long before it ends in the bed. Now certainly the consequences of the deed and the seed are different. The deed will get you the electric chair. It will wreck your marriage. You might contract a venereal disease. No other human being may know about the seed. But understand, in the eyes of God, the seed and the deed are one and the same. They're the same sin, just at different stages of development. True righteousness begins in my heart. Love overcomes anger and lust. When I love my enemy, I want to treat him as my friend. When I love people... I won't look selfishly at a pretty girl as a means to gratify myself. Rather, I'll see her as a person who belongs to the Lord. You see, it's whether I have love in my heart or whether I'm just trying to go through the motions and do the duties. It's all a matter of love. Jesus tells us when it comes to anger and lust, we need to stop going about business as usual and take drastic action. If you know there's a hostility brewing in your heart with another person... In verse 24, Jesus instructs you to leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's hypocrisy for us to come in here and worship God if we and a brother or sister in Christ are at each other's throat. We need to deal with those issues first. A lustful heart also calls for drastic action. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Now, obviously, Jesus doesn't mean to be taken literally here. For don't you know, if I can lust with my right eye, I can also lust with my left eye. So if I pluck out my right eye, I really haven't accomplished a whole lot. But God does want me to do whatever I have to do to overcome my weakness. That's the point. Perhaps I need to recruit a friend to hold me accountable. Maybe I need to cancel my cable subscription. 
or I need to restrict my internet access, or I need to break off contact with a bad influence, I need to be willing to do whatever it takes to overcome those sin in my life. Jesus also brings up this matter of divorce. The law allowed divorce, but it was never God's intention. Jesus sets the record straight. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Sylvester Stallone, or Rocky as he was known in his films, once said of boxing, Boxing is great exercise as long as you can yell cut whenever you want to. It's sad that many people feel the same way about, about marriage, marriage and divorce. Folks today, like the Pharisees of old, concocted all kinds of loopholes in order to get out of their marriage commitments. Whereas Jesus said, if you truly love, you'll find a way to work it out. You'll find a way to make it work. You know, if it's just a law you're keeping, you'll look for loopholes. But if God has put a love in your heart for the person to whom you're married, you will make it work. You'll honor that commitment. You'll be faithful. In verses 32 through 37, Jesus says that love keeps its word. The Jews developed the concept of an oath. They would swear by a third party in order to reinforce their commitment to their promise. The more prominent the third party, the more serious they were about keeping their word. Jesus says all this is silly, just deceptive. Why swear at all? Why not just keep your word in the first place? Be known in, in the community as a person whose yes is yes and your no is no. You mean what you say. Jesus says in verses 38 and 39, You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now understand, the human tendency is not eye for eye. It's if you take one of my eyes, I'll take two of yours. That's the human tendency. It's one-upmanship. It's back at you and a little harder than you hit me. Jesus says love goes the opposite direction. It shows mercy rather than demands justice. When we're attacked, God wants us to retaliate in love. Now let me make three important points about the last part of Matthew chapter 5. First, when Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, He is not stripping governments of their right to wage just wars and to defend their citizens. The Sermon on the Mount is to individuals, not governments. Second, Jesus isn't stripping you of the right to self-defense. Notice he says, if someone slaps you, and he specifies, on the right cheek. Statistics show that 90% of people are right-handed. So if a right-handed person is going to hit you on your right cheek, how is he going to have to do it? It's going to require a back of the hand. And you see, the back of the hand was not considered a physical assault. It was considered a social insult. It was not an attack. It was an insult. 
And Jesus is saying, if you're insulted, turn your cheek. But if someone seeks to harm you or your family, sock them in the nose. (laughs) And third, Jesus is not suggesting that we become doormats. Letting someone walk all over us isn't love. This is all about love. That's the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. It's love over law. Love doesn't let someone walk on top of us. Sometimes love means standing up. It's taking a stand for the truth. Here's what Jesus is saying at the end of Matthew chapter 5. My priority needs to be a love for people, not a demand of my rights. Here is the challenging question that Jesus poses to each of us. Am I willing to give up my rights in order to show you God's love? What right, Sandy? How about my right to dignity? Yeah, you can hit me on the cheek. You can insult me if you like. Your insult won't stop my love. What about your right to possessions? Go ahead, take my cloak. Your soul means more to me than my shirt. What about your right to liberty? Oh, I'll go. I'll walk with you a second mile if need be, because your salvation is more important to me than my convenience. A second mile is simply to me a further opportunity to witness and share Jesus with you. And what about your right to security? Yes, I'll be generous. I'll give you my cloak. I would rather you survive than me thrive. And understand, Jesus is not just talking here about how we treat our friends. That would be easy. No, he says in verse 43 and 44 of chapter 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Abraham Lincoln used to say, The only way to destroy an enemy is to turn him into a friend. That needs to be our attitude as well. In a sense, this is my greatest opportunity to be like Jesus. What did he do on the cross but love his enemies? And yet, guys, I have to admit, this is the point of my greatest failure. There is no way that you or I can obey the Sermon on the Mount in our own strength. Love our enemies? You've got to be kidding. But what God asks me to do, He also enables me to do. His love flows through me if I'm an open channel. Try to do the Sermon on the Mount in your own strength and you'll be like the Pharisees. You'll try to do it out of duty. But let the love of Jesus flow through you and it will produce in your life a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, in chapter 5, Jesus contrasts the righteousness of the Pharisees with true righteousness. Whereas in chapter 6, he contrasts the worship of the Pharisees with true worship. In the first 18 verses of chapter 6, he teaches us how to give, how to pray, and how to fast. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus sets out the guiding principle for all our acts of worship. He says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. 
Rather than give glory to God, the goal of the Pharisees was to be seen by men. Was to look more spiritual than they really were. What a horrible evil. The Pharisees had turned the worship of God into a circus. A three-ring circus, in fact. In verses 2 through 4, we find in ring number 1, the game of giving. In verses 5 through 8, we find the performance of prayer. And in ring number 3, verses 16 through 18, the farce of fasting. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus slips in. In between these verses, a model prayer. Now, every circus has its clowns. And the clowns of Judaism were the Pharisees. Oh, boy. When a Pharisee would drop his offering into the temple collection box, a brass band would strike up a jazzy tune to draw attention to what he was doing. When he prayed, he would speak to God, but his volume and his verbiage and his length of his prayer were all designed not to speak to God, but to impress people. And when he fasted, He would go as far as to spread sort of a white paste all over his face in order to make sure that you knew that he was pale, he was anemic. He wanted everyone to know the incredible act of self-denial he was undergoing for the cause of God. Jesus says, when you give and pray and fast to be seen by men, the moment you are seen, you have gotten the only reward you're going to get. Better enjoy the accolades. Better get as much as you can out of the pats on the back and out of the esteem of men. You'll get no reward from the Lord. As G. Campbell Morgan once said, motive is everything in the kingdom. When acts of worship are staged to impress man, they cease to impress God. Once I was officiating a wedding. And I meant to say, God has given the wife to compliment the husband. But sadly, that's not what came out of my mouth. (laughs) Instead, I said, God has given the wife to complicate the husband. (laughs) Now, it may be true. But it was not a truth that fit that specific occasion. It did, though, fit what the Pharisees had done to prayer. They had complicated it. Their prayers were long and wordy prayers, whereas in contrast, Jesus simplified prayer for his followers. Guys, if you want to pray better and you want to pray more consistently, The best approach to take is to simplify. Jesus gives us a model prayer. It is so simple, and yet it is so powerful. Verse 9, he says, In this manner, or according to this pattern, therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's worship. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's surrender. Give us this day our daily bread. That's faith. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's repentance. 
And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's humility. You need God's help. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And we come full circle. We end the way we began with worship. You know, a good investor has two concerns. Minimum risk and maximum reward. And usually there's a trade-off. You want more reward, you have to incur more risk. Desire to reduce your risk, and you'll give up some reward. But in verse 19, Jesus tips us off to the ultimate investment. Here it is. Zero risk and infinite reward. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. I always joke with people and say, oh yeah, I've got a great retirement. I've got eternal rewards laid up for me. You know, in these days, that's really a pretty good deal. Some of you guys are finding out. Your portfolio's shrinking. <laughs> Earthly investments will disappoint. But if you invest your life In the things of God, you'll never regret it. You will reap eternal benefits forevermore. Zero risk, maximum rewards. Then Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'll tell you the direction of your life. I'll tell you what makes you tick. How do you define the term valuables? Where your treasure is, your heart follows. If you don't want a broken heart, don't focus on breakables. We set ourselves up for disappointment when we live for earthly gain. Jesus tells us in verse 24, no man can serve two masters. You see, the throne in the human heart is a one-seater. One foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom won't work for long. Eventually, you'll have to decide, are you going to serve God? Are you going to serve this world? John Ruskin writes, Christ will put up with a great many things in the human heart, but there is one thing He will not put up with, and that's second place. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, contains the most disobeyed commandment in the Scriptures. In fact, there are many Christians who don't even think of this as a commandment. But our Lord tells us, Therefore I say to you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Hey, God commands us not to worry. How many of you have broken that commandment this week? We all have. Realize, worry is not a weakness. Worry is a sin. We need to treat it as such. Now, Jesus helps us overcome worry by pointing out three truths about it. You might want to jot these down. Verse 25, he tells us that worry is irresponsible. In verse 27, he says that it's irrelevant. And in verse 28, he says it's irreverent. First, worry is irresponsible. It's a waste of good time and energy. Jesus asks, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? You see, 90% of the stuff we worry about is stuff that's not that important anyway. It's temporal stuff rather than eternal things. Second, worry is irrelevant. 
Jesus asks again, Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So you're short. So you keep bumping your head on people's belt buckles. So start worrying. Go ahead. Go home. Work hard at it. Worry, worry, worry. Take three weeks off from work just to worry about your situation. Worry night and day. But all your worry won't add one single inch to your height. Former outfielder for the Texas Rangers, Mickey Rivers, he had a philosophy that I really like. He once said, Ain't no sense worrying about things you got control over. Because if you got control over them, ain't no sense worrying. And there ain't no sense worrying about the things you got no control over. Because if you got no control over them, it ain't no sense worrying. In other words, worry doesn't accomplish much good for anything. Third, Jesus says, worry is irreverent. It is a slap in the face of God for you to worry. You think about it. God clothes the lilies of the field. Man, God feeds the birds, the sparrows in the sky. These things will die and go into oblivion. And yet you are His child. You'll live forever with Him. Jesus died to save you. How much more is He going to care for you? It's been said, worrying is praying to the wrong God. If you believe in God, if you believe in the love of God, there is no need to worry. Verse 32 says to unbelievers, it says that the unbelievers, the Gentiles, they worry about many things. But Christians should worry about only one thing. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Guys, if you want to worry about something tonight, if you're just a, you're just a worrier and you've got to worry about something, well, let me tell you what to worry about. Why don't you worry about the lost people around you? Why don't you worry about the people in this world who don't have a Bible? Why don't you worry about the kids who don't have a meal tonight? Why don't you worry about the marriages that are on the verge of divorce? Why don't you worry about the teens in your neighborhood that you could help who have no role model? Why don't you worry about the needs of your church or the health of your family or the issues that God has impressed on you and yet to this day remain undone? Hey, worry about God's concerns. And you won't have anything left over of your own concerns and time and effort and energy to worry about. Chapter 7 begins with the verse that everyone likes to hide behind. (laughs) Point out to someone that they're living in sin. Or they're believing in a lie. And they'll fire back to you. Now wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say, Judge not that you be not judged. They may not know any other verse in the Bible, but they can quote you Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, can't they? But understand, if my judgments are based on Scripture, then it's not me judging. It's God judging. It's the Word of God doing the judging. Besides, this Greek word translated judge means to judge with the intent to condemn. When condemnation is our motive, certainly we shouldn't judge. But there are situations when it is proper to judge. Chapter 7 verse 15 tells us, beware of false prophets. Understand, a false prophet's not going to wear a little badge around his neck that says, hi, I'm a false prophet. (laughs) The verse requires that we make a judgment, that we use some discernment. We are called by God 
to judge for the purpose of identification, of restoration, of preservation. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 though covers those issues not spelled out in the Bible. Those issues that are not black and white but are the gray areas. Jesus says of these issues, judge not that you be not judged. You know, too often we pigeonhole, we stereotype folks. Generalizations need to be avoided. Never judge based on appearance. Nor judge based on an assumption you make about that person's motive. I don't care how good your eyesight is, not one of us here tonight can look and see what is truly in another person's heart. If you make assumptions and draw ill-informed conclusions about other people, don't be surprised when those other people make the same assumptions about you. Listen to this little poem. I like it. I dreamed death came the other night and heaven's gate swung open wide. An angel came to meet me and ushered me inside. There, to my astonishment, stood folks I'd known on earth. Some I judged and labeled unfit of little worth. Angry words rose to my lips but never were set free, for every face showed stunned surprise. No one expected me. (laughs) Don't judge. Jesus even gets humorous here. He talks about the guy with the two-by-four sticking it out of his eye, trying to get the toothpick out of his brother's eye. Come on. Remember, faults are like headlights. The other car's headlights always seem more glaring than your own. Don't judge. Chapter 7, verses 7 through 11 is a wonderful promise to ask, to seek, to knock. God wants to bless us in incredible ways. The only reason you don't have is because you haven't asked. Verse 12 is called the golden rule. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 has been called the Mount Everest of ethics. You know what Jesus said here? Other men have also said about human relationships. In fact, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud stated, what is hateful to you, do not to your fellow man. Buddha made this statement. Hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. Confucius put it, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Even Socrates phrased it, what stirs your anger when done to you, that do not to others. And yet here's the difference. Jesus gave new life to an old saying by giving it a new twist. Everyone else had phrased it in the negative, but Jesus put it in the positive. It's not enough to just avoid doing someone harm. Jesus wants us to look for ways to do that person good. People today like options. We live in an either-or world. You know, there was a time when all Americans drove either a Ford or a Chevy. Remember when bread was white? When telephones were black? When checks were green? No more. We like options, don't we? And this is true spiritually as well. People today like to pick and choose from different religions and put together their own belief system. Individual freedom is the ticket. There's only one problem. This multiple option orientation flies in the face of Jesus' words 
Here in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus cuts down our choices, man. He cuts to the chase. There are just two gates. There are just two ways. There are just two crowds. There are just two destinations. It's either eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. Those are your only two options. When you enter into eternity, there are just two sections, smoking or non-smoking. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. As I said earlier, verse 15 tells us, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. In other words, beauty is only fleece deep. Don't be deceived by a pleasant, even a pious appearance. Jesus says in verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. You know, in one sense, we're not to judge. But in another sense, we are all called to be fruit inspectors. We've got to be careful. Jesus warns us in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father, there will be people who will prophesy in Jesus name. They'll cast out demons. They will even work miracles. But Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. You see, works are not fruits. Remember, it's not what we do. It's what we be. Always ask, is the man's ministry characterized by the nature of Jesus? Do I look at him and see the beatitude? in spirit, meek, hungering for righteousness, merciful. Works are not fruits, and we need to be fruit inspectors. Here's a good rule. Don't follow anyone until you first find out who they are following. Jesus closes his sermon with the story of two builders. One man builds his house on the sand while the other man builds his house on the rock. And apparently, both men built houses that looked similar from the outside. It was only when the rains came that the foundational differences became apparent. And this is what happens when tough times come our way. Trials and tears test our foundation. Have we built our house on the rock of God's word or on the shifting sand of man's opinion? You see, here's the outcome of the man who hears and obeys God's word. Verse 25, the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But the foolish person who failed to keep God's word, we're told in verse 27, the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, but not just that, and great was its fall. Do we base our decision on God's timeless truths or do we take our cues and get our inspiration from Oprah or from the beer commercials on ESPN or from the radio talk show or from the latest self-help fad? On what kind of foundation are you building your life? On man's opinions or on the solid rock of God's Word? Chapter 7 closes by noting that the people that day were astonished at the authority of Jesus' teaching. I'm sure they were. 
for 2,000 years later, we're still astonished. What an incredible three chapters. It was a sermon supreme. 